Good morning again. You can turn in your Bibles, uh, if you have them in front of you, to Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12, while I move this out of the way. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles this week stacked on the table. They were, they were absent last week, but they are back. So if you need a Bible, if you uh, forgot a Bible, they're there on the table, uh, and you can turn to Mark 14, starting in verse 12, and we're going to continue on here uh, in our series through Mark's gospel. Read along with me, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen. Let me pray for us one more time briefly. Lord, I do pray that you would nourish your people now with your word. That as we have committed, as Trevor just prayed, to feed ourselves regularly on your word, that you would now fill us up, that you would fill our hearts and nourish our souls with the, the sweet honey of your word. And Lord, I pray that as you do that, you would exalt your son, Jesus Christ, in our midst and in our hearts, that we would love him more, trust him more, and obey him more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1599, William Shakespeare first unveiled his classic tragedy, 
Julius Caesar. The play recounts in dramatic, although not always historical detail, the events that led to the assassination of Julius Caesar. And it's a standard example of what the Greeks called the tragic hero. The tragic hero. If you're not sure what a tragic hero is, in literature, a tragic hero is typically one who, despite being exceptionally virtuous, is fatally flawed in one area and is doomed to some kind of epic catastrophe which he will sort of unwittingly and unknowingly walk right into. Julius Caesar was unmatched in bravery and courage and leadership and even likability, but at the height of his popularity, his arrogance and his lust for control stirred up the jealousy of his enemies, which ultimately led to his assassination. Uh, A more modern example that I'm sure some of you can appreciate of the tragic hero would be like Darth Vader, right? He is, uh, because of his fear, tragically led and driven to the dark side. Now, what's interesting, and the reason I'm telling you about the Greeks and tragic heroes and Julius Caesar and Darth Vader, is that there are a lot of scholars and, and academics who argue that Jesus fits right into this tragic hero model. He, he's a moral exemplar, as the argument goes, who understands the true heart of the Jewish scriptures, but his fatal flaw is that he believes himself to be the Messiah, who will usher in the kingdom of God on earth. And right at the height of his prominence, he becomes the tragic victim of his own reputation. His opponents who are threatened by his popularity foil his plans to establish God's kingdom by hatching a plot to have him arrested and ultimately executed. And then on the cross, when Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He finally but tragically realizes that he was never actually the Messiah to begin with. But our passage this morning is is a clear example of why any understanding of Jesus as the tragic hero just will not hold up. It just will not hold up. He is not a tragic hero. As we come to the last hours of Jesus' life, Mark's gospel is constantly confronting us with the reality that Jesus knows exactly who he is, what the Father has sent him to do, and what it will cost him. He knows exactly what will happen. And now listen, what I, what I want you to see this morning is, th- is that the fact that Jesus knows in advance all that he will have to endure and all that he will have to suffer in order to accomplish all that God the Father has sent him to do tells us one all-important thing about how he deals with you. You understand what I'm saying? The fact that he knows that he's not this tragic hero that just unwittingly walks into his own death, but that he knows in advance what he must accomplish, what he must endure to accomplish what the Father has sent him to do, it tells us one very all-important fact about how he deals with you. Are you ready? This is what it tells you. It tells you that no matter what, in every circumstance of your life, Jesus is relentlessly and unwaveringly committed to your eternal good in him. Do you you believe that this morning? 
Uh, our passage this morning brings us to the Last Supper. And, and friends, that's exactly what the Lord's Supper is all about. As Jesus takes the bread and the wine and, and radically redefines their symbolic meaning as mementos of his sacrificial death, we are reminded that Jesus knew exactly what it would take to rescue sinners. And he knew exactly what it meant that the hour of his suffering had come. And listen, that, that, that he knew in advance the events that had to unfold and the real suffering he would have to endure not only destroys the notion of him as a tragic hero, but more than that, it, it continually assures us of his love for us. He's not a tragic hero. He is the eternally victorious hero who loves his people literally to death. And as Jesus shares this last meal with his disciples, Mark shows us this portrait of him as that hero by reminding, of, reminding us of all that he knew in advance concerning the events that would ultimately lead to his death. Mark's going to show us this picture. He's going to show us, look at all that Jesus knew in advance concerning the events that would actually lead to his death. So this morning, I, I want to show you three of those things that Jesus knew in advance. Three things I think we see in this passage that Jesus knew in advance that point to Jesus as this victorious hero who does and knows and accomplishes all that his father has sent him to do. So three things. He knows where the meal will be. That's verses 12 through 17. He knows who would betray him. That's his, the verse 18 through, 20, no, uh, 18 through 21. And finally, he knows what it all means, verses 22 through 25. Where the meal would be, who it was that would betray him, and what it all means. So, the first thing, where the meal would be. Our, our passage begins with the disciples asking Jesus where they're going to uh, celebrate the Passover. And it's an understandable question given the masses of people that flocked into Jerusalem for this festival, right? The city uh, would be overflowing with people. In the disciples' mind, it's already afternoon, and, and they weren't, Jesus hadn't clued them into whatever the Passover arrangements are, and they knew that trying to make arrangements late on Thursday afternoon, the night that you're to celebrate the Passover, would be like trying to secure a reservation, a dinner reservation in Philadelphia on Saturday night at like 5 p.m. Like it's going to be really, really difficult. So they ask Jesus, like, what, what are we doing? What's the plan? Jesus responds by sending two disciples ahead into the, into the city with what read like these sort of covert instructions for this clandestine meetup with a man who will direct them. They're to find a man that Jesus describes as carrying a jug of water. Like, uh, okay. Well, why is that significant? Uh, typically, it was the women's responsibility to transport water in these jugs to their homes. And so it, he would be easy enough to spot to sort of signal that this is the guy. He'll be carrying a jug of water. And there's not going to be many men carrying jugs of water because that's what women do. So once they identify him, they're to follow him to his house. And you get the sense that Jesus wants the disciples to be sort of discreet here. Follow him to a house, and he'll show you, and he'll take you to a place where you'll meet with the master of the house, and you'll say these words to the master of the house. 
The teacher says, where is my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? It, it, it sort of reads like the, the script of like one of those conspiracy movies, like complete with mystery contacts and undisclosed locations and secret passwords. It's, it's possible, maybe even probable, that Jesus had made some kind of prearrangement with the owner of the house he had been in the city before. But it's also possible that Mark includes this as yet another example of Jesus' divine foreknowledge and sovereignty over every little detail. It re- if, you re- if you read it, I wonder if it reminded you of something we, we saw earlier on in Mark. It sort of reminds you, do you remember when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he sends two of his disciples to ahead to a village where they're going to find a cult tied up that's never been ridden on that they're to bring to him so that he can ride into the city? It sounds a lot like that. But either way, whether it's this prearrangement or just Mark pointing again to the, to the sovereign foreknowledge of Jesus, the net effect is that Mark wants us to recognize Jesus' advanced knowledge of where the Passover would be and his intimate concern with all the details of how that meal is going to unfold. In fact, as you'll see, though it's not at his home, Jesus is the one who is hosting this meal. But, but all of this should leave us with some questions. And I wonder if, if you don't have these questions, I'm going to plant these questions in your mind, but I'm guessing that some of you already have these questions. One of them is, why is Jesus so concerned about the details of this meal? And maybe more obviously, why is part of that concern the need to discreetly and even secretly get himself and the disciples to that meal? What's with all the secrecy and all the passwords and the, you know, meet the guy with the jug? The, the answer is that Jesus knows what's happening in all of the, the dark alleys and corners of Jerusalem among the chief priests and the scribes. He knows what has already transpired in the heart of the one who would betray him. You'll remember last week that our chapter begins by telling us that the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And that Judas had already gone to the chief priests and the scribes in order to betray him. You see, the tragic hero doesn't know any of that stuff. He's, he, the tragic hero just sort of unwittingly walks into this trap set for him. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows that wandering around the city looking last minute for some place to hold the meal would have provided a ready opportunity for him to be quietly arrested and seized. But Jesus knew his time was not yet, and he was determined to share one last meal with his disciples. And the point is this. Here's the point. The point is that Jesus is aware of every little thing that's happening. Do you see that? In, in, in sending his disciples ahead, meeting up with the man, the, securing this large upper room, doing it discreetly, it's because he knows everything that is happening. He, he is no victim of some secret plot where he will be inadvertently caught up in it. We see here that he knows exactly how to avoid the traps of his enemies. 
The, the religious leaders are not getting one over on him. He's not blind to their schemes, nor is he deaf to their whispering plots. Jesus is not the naive victim of some ruthless and conniving plan. He is not a helpless little bunny who sort of just unknowingly is lured into a snare and then wriggles around trying to get free. No, the, the, the picture Mark paints is of one who is not only sovereignly aware and in control of all these events as they take place, but one who is actually resolved to see them through because he, unlike his enemies, knows what his death will truly mean. We see Jesus absolutely determined to rush into the suffering he knows is coming. He, he has set his face towards Jerusalem. And why? Because he is doggedly committed to fulfilling the purpose for which his father sent him. Namely, to die in the place of sinners in order to accomplish their salvation. And, and listen, it's at this point that it's, it's probably worthwhile for us to just stop and remember something. Just as Jesus sovereignly knew all of the events that would unfold in his own life and would ultimately climax and lead to his death, his death he also knows everything about your life. Everything. He has determined and therefore knows how every minute of your life will unfold from the day you were born to the day you die. He knows it all. Down to the, to the smallest detail. And, and just as he sovereignly and steadily moves along the course that God the Father has given to him, so he faithfully and sovereignly by his Spirit moves us steadily along the course God has set out for us. Brothers and sisters, I'm saying this because I want you to take comfort in knowing that even when you don't know what is happening in your life, like I'm sure that you have felt the awareness that you are not in control of your own life. But, but take comfort in knowing that even when you don't know what is happening in your life or where it's going or what will happen, he does. He does know. The disciples had no idea where the Passover meal would be or who this guy with the water jug was. They, they had to trust that Jesus knew something that they did not. And that is often the case in our own lives. And here's the thing. Be, because you know, listen, because you know that he chose, that knowing in advance all that was to take place, he chose to embrace all that needed to happen for your eternal salvation in him, you also know that no matter what he brings across the path of your life, he can be trusted. He is trustworthy. You can trust him. He knew where the meal would be. And as the disciples sit down and begin to eat, Jesus announces something else that he knows. He knows who it is that will betray him. Look there at verse 18. We read these words. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. 
they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, despite the, uh, the mental imagery that I'm imagining most of us have of the Last Supper as a result of da Vinci's painting. Do you know the painting? You know, there's Jesus and he's got his disciples in the, in the, the table. Despite that uh, imagery, most likely there were upwards of like 30 people at the, this supper, at the table. Jesus had procured a large upper room that would have been uh, suitable for far more than just him and his 12 disciples. And it's likely that seated at the table were other disciples uh, with their wives and perhaps even their children. So then in the middle of the meal, Jesus, so if you can imagine it, Jesus clears his throat and announces that someone sitting there among them was going to betray him. And, And sorrow begins to rise up in the disciples' heart and they begin questioning Jesus about who it would be And their stomachs sink even further when Jesus clarifies, saying it's it's going to be one of the twelve. One of the twelve, one who is dipping their bread in the dish with me. It's going to be one of the men who has spent the last three years with him. It's going to be one of the men that had been with him through his ministry, who had heard all of his teaching, who had seen all of his miracles, who ate with him, who traveled with him. It, it was going to be, think about this, it was going to be one of the men that was in the boat when the waves and the storm was crashing against the boat so much that it would sink. It was one of the men that when they were in that boat heard Jesus calm the storm with a word, peace be still. It was going to be one who, who saw and heard Jesus do that. Jesus knows someone will betray him. He knows it's going to be one of those closest to him. And though Mark doesn't include it here, Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus knew precisely that it was going to be Judas by adding this one verse. If you want to flip there, you can, or I'll just read it to you. Matthew sort of fills out and ends his account by saying this, Matthew twenty six twenty five. A Judas who would betray him answered, is it I, Rabbi? That's what they're all saying. They're saying to Jesus, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And then Judas says to Jesus, is it, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. Now Jesus' response might sound a little bit confusing, but it's meant to do two things. The first thing is it's meant for Jesus to say, yes, it's you. Yeah, Judas, it's you. But the second thing, the way he says it, you have said so, is a way for Jesus to communicate. And you asking this question, you're bringing condemnation on yourself because you know what's in your own heart. Now, the question that we have to ask when we come to the reality that Jesus knows, not only that someone will betray him, not only that it will be one of those closest to him, one of the 12, not only that it will be precisely Judas, the question we have to ask ourselves then is, why doesn't Jesus stop it? Like, like it's a story that we have just heard over and over and over again. And we miss this big obvious question. He knows in advance. He knows who it's going to be. Why doesn't he stop it? Like, why doesn't he say to the other 11 disciples, it's going to be Judas. You guys need to take him out back and straighten him out. Or why doesn't he dispatch some disciples to sort of follow Judas and prevent him from carrying out his evil errand? Why doesn't he stop it? Jesus 
tells us in verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying this is what the Scriptures predict of the Messiah. All the scriptures point to God's redemptive plan to to send his Messiah into the world, to fulfill the law, to establish his kingdom. But also, the way that's going to happen is that the Messiah is going to be betrayed. He's going to suffer. He's going to die in the place of sinners. He's saying, I am the suffering servant all the law and the prophets point to, which prophesy this very thing, and I am determined to fulfill all the scriptures. It reminds us of John 17 concerning Jesus. Remember when uh, Jesus prays this in his high priestly prayer in John 17? He says, Holy Father, keep them. He's speaking of his disciples. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled in referring to Judas. And likewise, after Jesus' ascension, the disciples also understood that this betrayal, this act of Judas was a fulfillment of God's divine purposes. Look, on one occasion, after Jesus' ascension, but before Pentecost, they're in a room praying together. Acts 1, verse 16, Peter stands up, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and, there, and let there be no one uh, and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. See, for Jesus and eventually for the disciples, they look at this act, this act of betrayal, and what they see is the fulfillment of the Scriptures, the fulfillment of God's divine purposes for the Messiah. Now listen, I I say all that to make this point again, that Jesus knew all that was to take place, that from all eternity, God the Father had predestined the sin of Judas that would inevitably lead to his arrest and execution. It is God's eternal plan that Jesus should come into the world and be betrayed unto death. And here's the point. Jesus willingly submits himself to it. He, he could have, he knew in advance, he could have stopped it. But he submits himself to God's eternal purposes. He submits himself to the scriptures. It's exactly what Peter says in his sermon at Pentecost. This, this Jesus, Acts 2, 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There's, There's a really interesting conversation here that we're going to have to pass over a a, a little bit uh, for the sake of time concerning the relationship between divine sovereignty and and human responsibility. A passage like this provokes the question, 
if, if, if it was God's eternal purpose that Judas should sin in this way in betraying Jesus, how does he then still count Judas as guilty and, and, and blame him for this act? If, if, if that's a question that you have or a question that you've wrestled with, I would love to talk to you uh, after the service. But, but for now, let me just point this out. Do you see in this, this one verse that Jesus sees no contradiction between the eternal purposes of God being fulfilled and the real responsibility that Judas bears for his actions? Right? Because immediately after Jesus explains Judas' act of betrayal as the fulfillment of Scripture, he said, no, this must happen. It is the fulfillment of Scripture. It is the divine, eternal purpose of God. Immediately after he says that, he says, but woe to that man. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Right? Jesus is not only calling down a curse, the curse of God's judgment on Judas for his act, but he is saying, uh, using a figure of speech that we are all really familiar with. It's actually one of the few figures of speeches that sort of travels forward from the, the, the ancient, uh, from ancient history into the, the, the modern era, right? You, what he effectually is saying is, Judas, when you experience what's coming to you, you're going to wish you were never born. That's what he's saying. So you see, Jesus has no problem affirming both the divine sovereignty of God and predestining all these events, even the sin that will lead to these, event, these events, and the real responsibility and, and guilt that humans bear as a result of their own evil decisions. Now, listen, if you just tuned out for a minute, like if that went over your head, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's okay. Don't worry. Uh, but now, now's the time to tune back in because th- this is the thing that I, I really want you uh, to see. This formal act of betrayal on Judas' part is the first link in a chain of increasingly painful events where Jesus is abandoned by those he loves. First, it's Judas. Then in the garden, his three closest disciples can't even stay awake and pray. In his darkest hour, in his deepest time of need, they, they fall asleep. And then at Jesus' arrest, all his disciples run away. They all flee. And then at his trial, there's Peter. Denies he even knows Jesus. But, but there's another link in that chain, isn't there? There's another link in the chain of Jesus' betrayal and abandonment. That's you. It's me. Just as we must acknowledge that our sin cries out with the crowd, crucify him, we must also acknowledge that our own lives bear witness against us that we are just like Judas, just like Peter, just like the disciples. We are just like all that is, all those that have come before us. We are betrayers of Jesus Christ. He's held himself out to you in all his beauty and goodness. And so often you have chosen your sin. He has provided opportunities to speak of him, 
to speak of his grace, to speak of his mercy, but you have shrunk back in fear of what others might think of you. you. You've made promises to him to live your life committed to his glory and his mission in the world, but so often you find yourself pursuing your own glory and your own comfort and your own desires and your own goals, all devoid of Jesus. But here, but listen, this is what I want you to so, so desperately what I want you to see this morning. He knew all of that. He knew Judas would betray him. He knew his disciples wouldn't stay awake. He knew they would all flee. He knew Peter would deny him. He knew you would betray him. He knew every sin that you would commit every day of your life. And he still went. He still went. Willingly. He knew exactly what it would cost him to purchase the salvation of betrayers and sinners. He knew what it would take to make you his enemy, his own. He he knew all the terrible things that had to take place, the trial, the false accusations, the pain, the beatings, the abandonment. He, He knew not only that he would have to face the abandonment of his friends and those that he loved, but he knew that on the cross he would have to experience the abandonment and forsakenness of his own heavenly father as he was crushed under the weight of his wrath for sin. He he knew it all and he went in love, brothers and sisters. He went knowing your sin, knowing that today you will fail him. Tomorrow you will fail him and the day after that you will fail him. And yet he said, I'm going. I will go to secure their salvation and their eternal good in me. He knew it all and he went. In fact, there was nothing that could stop him from marching toward his own death for the eternal salvation of his people. Doesn't that just assure you and, and anchor your soul to know his love for you? Brothers and sisters, when you feel the pain and guilt of being confronted with your own sin today, tomorrow, and the days that come, be comforted in remembering that Jesus knew it. And he went to the cross to pay for it. He is, listen, Jesus is not surprised by your sin. He is grieved by it. Don't make no mistake. He is grieved by it, but he is not surprised by it. You see, this passage reminds us that the grounds for the new mercies that we experience each morning, the grounds for for being able to, to come to him corporately and confess our sins and know that he is, as the scripture says, just to forgive us, is that Jesus knew, he knew what he must do. He knew all the sin that he would have to pay for, and he willingly submitted to it and went to his own death. He knew when he went up the hill of Golgotha, all your sins, past, present, and future, and knowing them, he marched up the hill of God's judgment to be finally abandoned so that you never would be. 
He knew where the meal would be. He knew who would betray him. And lastly, he knew what all of it meant. Now, the, the perceptive reader of Mark's gospel will begin to ask themselves this question, some questions, some questions I've already sort of planted in your mind. What, what, what is the secrecy all about? Why, why is Jesus being betray, betrayed and what is it pointing to and, and what does it all mean? What are all these events pointing to? And Jesus' answer to that question comes as he holds up a piece of bread and a cup filled with wine. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. Look at verse 22. It says, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The, the Passover meal was the covenant meal of God's people. As I'm sure many of you know, it, it, it looked back on the deliverance from slavery in Egypt that God mightily worked for his people. And the passage we read early in our service from Exodus recounts the events of that night wherein God promised the death of every firstborn in Egypt. And to rescue his own, he commands his people to sacrifice a lamb and to spatter the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of their house as a sign to the Lord to pass over the house. God's judgment was about to fall on Egypt, Egypt, but if in faith... They trusted God and put the lamb's blood forward as a substitute. They would be spared. And listen, you need to understand something. The Passover meal for, for, for the Jewish people, it was this event, perhaps more than any other event, that gave them this sense of, their sense of identity as the chosen people of God, separated for him as they experienced in their midst Yahweh's strong hand of deliverance. This was the great salvation act that they looked back on as definitional to who they were as the people of God. And so every year, the covenant people of God would gather around the table to remember the Lord who brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And at this meal, a host... In this case, Jesus would ritually explain all the food and what each represented. Uh, a lamb shank that represented the lamb that had to be sacrificed. Uh, bitter herbs to represent the bitterness of slavery. Salt water, water to represent the tears of the slaves. And unleavened bread to represent the bread they carried with them as they escaped and so on. And after each phase of the dinner, a cup of wine. But as Jesus, the host of this meal, stands up to explain the food, he, he takes the bread and he holds it up. And to the great surprise of his dinner guests, he goes totally off script. He holds up the bread and he says, this is my body. This is my body. Take. What is he saying? 
they must have wondered. What is he saying? Maybe you're wondering what the significance of those words are. Here's what Jesus is saying. God sustained and nourished his people with unleavened bread as they escaped out of Egypt. And again, he sustained them with manna from heaven in the wilderness. But all of that was a pointer to Christ. All of that was a pointer to the true bread from heaven that God has sent into the world to satisfy the the deepest longings and cravings of his people, the soul thirst of his people. It's exactly what Jesus says in John 6, 35, right? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And listen, get this. In Jesus saying, take, this is my body, he is pledging himself to his people. He's pledging himself to to his disciples. He's saying, I'm giving you all of myself. I will hold nothing back. I will give all of myself, even unto death, so that they could have him and have and in knowing him have true joy and peace and fullness of heart. He is the only bread who can truly nourish and fill up the soul. And then afterwards he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he he gave it to them, and they all drank, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many. It's the cup that that most sort of immediately and directly points us back to that blood spattered on the doorpost. He's saying that that sacrificial lamb without blemish and without spot, that they were to sacrifice as a substitute so the Lord's judgment would pass over again was ultimately a pointer to him the truer and greater paschal lamb the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world it's it's how John the Baptist you remember when John the Baptist announces Jesus public ministry he sees Jesus coming and he says behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Jesus is saying that his shed blood would seal a new covenant, a better covenant with his people, a covenant Jeremiah says that's not like the covenant God made with Israel when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. This is what Jeremiah says, verse uh, chapter 31, verse 33, for this is the covenant. I should say the Lord, this is what the Lord says through Jeremiah, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each other and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You see that the meaning of the secrecy and the betrayal and the abandonment and finally Jesus' death is all found here in this meal. It's all found right here in this meal. Do you see how self-conscious, I don't mean self-conscious like embarrassed. I mean how self-aware Jesus is in speaking about the meaning of his own death, in presenting the bread as 
his body and the cup as his blood. He's pointing to his own imminent execution and he's saying to his disciples, this is what my death means. This is what my death means. It means not merely salvation from a cruel nation or from earthly uh, earthly, um, slavery, but salvation from sin and death itself. It means full and complete reconciliation with God and the promise of eternal life. It means full and complete reconciliation uh, with, with uh, the, the righteous God who stands over us. S- listen, scholars want to take this claim. Remember I said this in the beginning, that scholars want to take this claim uh, or, or this reality that on the cross Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they want to sort of portray that as a cry of defeat because he realized that he wasn't the Savior after all. But, but nothing could be further from the truth. It's precisely the fact that he screams those words from Psalm 22 on the cross that assures us that he is truly the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He knew what his forsakenness would mean. He knew in order that we should be received that he would have to be forsaken. He knew that his forsakenness would mean your inclusion. That his curse would mean your blessing that his death would mean your life, that his abandonment would mean your welcome, that his judgment would mean your acquittal, that his hell would mean your heaven. And so out of love, he willingly went to his death. But, but you know what? There's, there's one other thing this passage and this meal tells us Jesus knew in advance tells us one more thing. It tells us that he knew that death would not have the final word. That's why in verse 25, after drinking the cup with his disciples, he says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. Right? You see, he knows he's going to die. He's not going to drink again of the, fruit of, the, of the fruit of the vine. But then that glorious, wonderful word, until. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He he was going to die. He had to die. He chose to die. He he willingly went in joyful submission to his father and out of the deepest sense of love for his people, he goes. But three days after he is hung on a tree, the earth splits, the grave shudders, and death itself is defeated. And now he calls out by his spirit to all who would put their faith in him alone that they would have a share in his victory over sin and death. They have the assurance of the full forgiveness of sin and the promise that one day they will sit with Jesus at his table to eat and drink in the fullness of God's kingdom. This, listen, this is an appetizer. This meal is an appetizer. This this meal is a pointer to the feast that we will one day share with our Savior. We read this verse at the beginning of our service, Psalm 113, verses 7 and 8. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. As we hold the elements together in just a moment, remember that that Jesus knew exactly who he was. 
He knew what his father sent him to do, and he knew what it would cost him to purchase your salvation, and he did it willingly for you. He laid down his life to bring about your eternal good in him. And if that's true, if that's true, which it is, what can't you trust him with? The Son of Man came not to serve, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His service to you was loving, and it was kind, and it was gracious, and it was strong. And he brought about the greatest possible good that you could ever receive. And so as you hold the bread and the cup, be absolutely assured. Be absolutely assured of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. And remember that you have a Savior that can be trusted in every circumstance with everything. He knew it all. And in love, he unwaveringly went to his death so that you might have life in him. Brothers and sisters, trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this meal that we're about to take and what it means and what it says. We thank you that in this meal we are indeed assured that you love us. Not because we are worthy of it, not because we are inherently lovable or lovely, but because in your mercy and your grace and your kindness and your compassion you have set your love upon us and we know because you sent your son into the world to die for us that we might know the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. Oh Lord, assure us again of your love for us in this meal. Remind us again of our Savior who knew all that it would cost and knew all that we have done to earn your judgment. All that we have done as enemies of you, and yet he, he went to the cross willingly for us. Lord, nourish us with this food, with bread and with drink. Remind us again of your love to us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.